Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. I'm Tobias, and I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I spent the weekend in Brussels attending the annual Collab Days Belgium event. So that's an event. If you're not familiar with that one, it's an annual event organized by Bivug, which I think is the Belgian Information Worker User Group. It's a, it's a splendid event. Good crowd, super nice speaker dinner, awesome speakers, a very nice SharePoint. So SharePoint is from back in the day when we still had SharePoint Saturday events. After the event, you would go and have a pint. And it's it's funny when you go to an event like this, it's it's always or usually on a Saturday, when you go to an event like this, you sort of go into a bubble during those those weekends. You focus on the event, on the schedule, on your upcoming session, on the people there, and forget everything else. And then once you get home, for me on a Sunday, you sort of gradually transform back to your routines and regular schedule and and push back the bubble that you were in. So super grateful for the weekend, but also happy to be home. Sounds good. Um, and I do recall some really good SharePoints back in the day. Um, so on my side, I needed to extend my Wi-Fi at home. Uh, so I got one of those nice Unify U6 Wi-Fi extenders. My three-year-old asked this morning, what is this thing? Because uh, it does catch your your eye a little bit. It's got this blue light on it, so it does shine really nice in the hallway now. So I just said, this is so we can watch Netflix in the bedroom over the weekend. And the three-year-old immediately just proceeded to unplug the Wi-Fi extender, took it under the arm, and ran into the bedroom and said, let's watch Netflix right now. So now I'm kind of <laughs> contemplating on if that was a good location to put the Wi-Fi extender. So I, I do have some uh, educational moments at home to explain what this thing does. And you don't actually watch Netflix on the... Wi-Fi extender, um, but yeah, that was uh, that was a good decision. Now I've got good Wi-Fi across my entire house, uh, and we're all happy when the three-year-old decides to plug this thing back into the wall socket. That's awesome. That's definitely a discussion you wouldn't be having with your kids twenty years ago. But today, it's <laughs> it feels totally normal. Uh, a community highlight we found from Gregor Reimling. Reimling. Let's say Rhymling, I think. Uh, it's about the new Azure Update Center, which is now generally available. And this is a multi-part blog. So he goes through the main reasons on why you should migrate to the new Azure Update Center and perhaps let go of the old classic Update Management Center. Toby, I do know you don't really work with infrastructure as a service, virtual machines and stuff like this. And the Azure Update Center, I feel, is is more for that. But any experience with the classic one? Did you ever use that? Uh, I did use that, but under a pretty limited fashion. Because in, in the organizations I used to work with, my main responsibility was not to kind of roll out the patch management and updates. Um, I was usually involved in the discussions around how we should roll out, and you know, risk mitigation and compliance and staying compliant and adhering to regulatory compliance requirement standards and stuff like that, which includes understanding these things. But I was not the one pushing the button saying, okay, this set of uh, machines now needs to get an update. I'm happy to hear there's a new experience for that. Uh, but I, I don't have a lot of experience in, in the old one either. Alrighty. So you can find the link in the show notes to this blog post. Today's episode is about reflecting 
on the Microsoft Digital Defense Report 2023 edition. But before we get to that actual content, uh, we made a slight change on how we produce this podcast. So what we did is we switched the audio recording solution. This is the first episode where we are using a new service and a sort of a new setup for recording this audio you are hearing right now. I feel the audio quality is much better now, but if you feel it's perhaps not as good as before, or if it's even better than before, which we truly hope, feel free to reach out to us, feedback link in the show notes, or if you feel just go on X, I'm still almost inclined to say Twitter, but you got, you can go on X, ping me or Toby, with any feedback, any comments on the audio quality. How do you feel, Toby, about this change? I feel great because um, I, I don't spend a lot of time contemplating about details of how things are set up or whatever. If it works, it works. For me, it's more important to focus on the content. Uh, this does seem to work. And if the output of the quality uh, on the audio is, is higher, then mission accomplished. Agreed. Agreed on that one. I'm a little bit um, excited or frightened on how we end up with this one because we're recording right now. I have a new window on my second display that it's blinking the recording light. Once we're done recording this, I will click on stop and I'm truly hoping it will commit and save the audio. But if it doesn't, then we'll just do this again. All righty, so let's get to the actual topic on the Microsoft Digital Defense report. And I think this, this is maybe an annual report, right? Yeah, it is. And uh, this is the fourth year where Microsoft shares like actionable steps and insights uh, from the kind of digital defense landscape and, and cybercrime and, and cybersecurity. Uh, the report period for this annual report is from July 2022 to June 2023. So that's kind of the scope. So any news, any new developments that happened after June 2023 is not part of this report. So that's good to keep, bear in mind as well. So it is annual. Um, and what I also want to kind of point out is like before diving into the details of the report, um, you might think, why would I even care about this? Who should care about this? Um, so normally I would say executives in the cloud landscape, not just using Microsoft technologies, but any executive in, in the cloud, regardless of what public cloud or private cloud you're using, um, you know, anyone working with cybersecurity, cloud security, or just general security practitioner or security advocate that needs to understand the threat landscape at large and what it looks like today. Uh, and just people with a vested interest in security, uh, you know, high and low, there's going to be something for everyone in, in this report. And it is truly baffling the, the numbers we're going to dive into and, you know, the, the threat landscape that Microsoft has kind of mapped out in, in this report. So if you resonate with working anything at all with security, risk, compliance, uh, anything like that, this might be interesting to you. I would perhaps argue a little bit having skimmed through the report. I wouldn't say I've read everything in the report. It's quite lengthy. There's an executive summary as well that you can sort of get the essentials. But I would maybe argue a little bit that perhaps the name of the report should be Microsoft Digital Threat and Defense Report, because quite a bit of this is about the existing and upcoming threats in terms of security. 
and how do you defend against those? So it's just not purely on, on the defense aspect part, but more on the risks as well. So this is split into various chapters. There's the state of cybercrime, nation state threats, critical cybersecurity challenges, innovating for security and resilience, and collective defense. And, and our plan is to go through all of these on a, on a high enough level so that you can get the essence. But make sure to check the show notes because we have the link for the report itself. It's a nicely laid out PDF, so it's a joy to read. But at the same time, there's quite a bit of information as well. So maybe start with the executive summary, and then when you find something super interesting, you can dive in to the actual report. Yeah, I, I think that's good advice. Um, and before we dive into these chapters that you just kind of outlined, uh, Microsoft are sharing some numbers uh, that I find really interesting. And, and these are like high-level numbers of the entire threat landscape, if you will. Uh, some of the interesting things here are um, 65 trillion signals are synthesized every single day. That's 750 billion signals per second. And that means synthesized using kind of sophisticated data analytics and AI algorithms. That is mind-blowing to me. 750 billion signals per second. And that in itself kind of paints the picture of how wide cast this, this uh, threat landscape is and where these signals are kind of being collected. Any thoughts on, on these numbers? Is it even com comprehensible to understand what 65 trillion is? No, no, it's not. I'm, I'm here trying to count in my head how many zeros that is, and I, I have no idea. I would need to need to use ChatGPT to figure this out. But 750 billion signals per second. So obviously, that's not a single web application firewall running on Azure getting all of that in. But it's probably it's synthesized and it's it's aggregate data. So throughout everything, Microsoft 365, Azure globally. So Microsoft has a huge footprint. So I'm expecting a huge amount of signals. But even then, 750 billion signals. I'm, I'm not really sure who's doing the KQL queries on those. those. Let's <laughs> see, security events, pipe, where? <laughs> yeah, Group by second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what else? what else in terms of numbers? So uh, a little bit more comprehensible numbers from the report is that there's 300 unique threat actors tracked with Microsoft Threat Intelligence. And a threat actor is like a, a known group or a, a state actor working for a specific country or something like that, like a, a known group uh, of threat actors. So I think that's a bit more comprehensible. Um, there's also numbers like 100,000 domains, more than 100,000 domains used by cyber criminals were removed, uh, which is all time, not just scope for that report, but all time, um, they've removed more than 100,000 malicious domains or do domains that cyber criminals were using, which is awesome. Um, and something that I find really profound, um, because now you, you get the numbers behind it, because everyone says, hey, identity is your new kind of perimeter security. This is where you need to improve things, MFA, whatever. 4,000 identity attacks are being blocked per second, 24-7. That is a lot. So 4,000 identity attacks are being blocked per second, which again proves the point, coming back to what we've talked to uh, so many times in this podcast, enable MFA, you know, embrace zero trust, all these things um, to increase the, uh, the identity and the perimeter security around your identity specifically. Um, 
And then I think the the kind of final number that stood out here is 153 million managed devices uh, are providing security and threat landscape insights. So when you have man managed devices pulled up into Intune or whatever kind of MDM system you have, um, you know those are providing some type of telemetry or, or kind of threat uh, landscape insights that you can also use to um, to gain insights into what the threat uh, threat landscape looks like at large. So I think that's that's pretty cool. It's interesting to see uh, you know these numbers to paint a picture because otherwise you just hear oh there's a threat you know there's cyber crime, there's threat, the cybersecurity team need to have awareness. But now we're painting the picture with numbers to kind of build an understanding of how wide this is. It's not just one organization doing some cyber crime activities. It is a lot of actors, threat actors out there. And it's happening every second. So, I mean, just 4,000 identity attacks being blocked per second indicates that there is a lot of active uh, attacks happening 24-7 everywhere. So again, security is not an afterthought. Uh, shift left, embrace security, and let everyone in your organization know that security is a shared responsibility. Any thoughts on those numbers? So let me pick on those last two numbers. So 4,000 identity attacks per second. It's surprisingly low if you consider 750 billion signals Per second, so a signal is obviously obviously just one piece of a possible attack. But four thousand, it's a lot. But at the same time, it's not as much as I feared. Maybe, but my my perception might be skewed here. The other one, though, that's that's too low in my opinion. One hundred and fifty-three million managed devices. So this is probably devices that are MDM or MAM. So so application managed or device managed. And I I feel everyone should be on the boat with managed devices. So they should manage devices, push Defender for Endpoint or something similar to their devices. 153 million, again, quite a bit. But if we consider, I don't know how many companies are actually using Entry-D and, and, and Microsoft Defender capabilities, it tells me that not all companies who have the license have successfully deployed that. or then they're using a different MDM solution than Intune and, and Defender for Endpoint. So admirable numbers, but I'm hoping this to be bigger in the future. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, just to, to round that off, I, I think uh, 153 million managed devices, I'm not sure if there's a way to opt in or opt out to send signals like tele telemetry, or if people can say, hey, our Intune deployment should not send telemetry uh, or whatever MDM uh, system you're using, maybe that's an option as well, where where it's not opted opted in by default. I'm not sure, um, but yeah. So high level, what are some things we can do to protect against like 99% of attacks? We've heard this so many times before. Uh, we know MFA is one thing, and it's it's worth repeating because again, we see that a lot of companies are not using MFA, which is to me a, a very strange thing there might be reasons might not be reasons i'm not sure but according to uh, to the report uh, these are kind of the things you can do to protect against 99 percent of attacks so mfa being one multi-factor authentication what are some other things uh, that we found in the report so mfa is the obvious one and maybe 10 years ago you would say enable mfa and you you switched it on that's it but now you have 
so much flavor in MFA, so many approaches on how do you want to do this. So that this definitely requires a bit more uh, consideration on how do you successfully do it. So the other bits, zero trust, it's not a surprise. Yet, I, I think whenever we talk about zero trust in the context of this, this show, if I'm doing a presentation on zero trust at an event, I always feel that yes, it's sort of the same now as MFA that you can just say, let's do zero trust. But then how do you do it and what applies and, 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 and how does it depend on different environments? That's the big question. It's a bit like, let's do IoT. Yeah, what specifically do you mean if you deploy one Raspberry Pi? Is that IoT? No, no, no. You actually have to go end to end. The same applies here. So I feel these two, MFA and zero trust, they are probably key things here. The latter one, much more complex to, to actually set up. While MFA can be complex, but it's fairly straightforward. Anything else that caught your eye in the in the high level top actions? Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things. Uh, one thing that stands out always is using an XDR or extended detection and response system and kind of anti malware. So if you have servers, if you have devices, make sure you have anti malware deployed on all of those. Um, which kind of resonates with the keep everything up to date as well. Just like you mentioned, the community highlight with the update management getting a, a refresh. Keeping up to date is something we can't state enough. So unpatched and outdated systems, they are key reasons for many organizations being attacked and breached. So ensure your systems are always up to date, including firmware, operating systems, applications you have running and more. Um, everything should be up to date. And finally, like protecting your data should also be uh, if identity MFA and zero trust is kind of the, the perimeter for your identity and, and you know attackers getting in when they are on the inside, because again, you should assume breach. That's the principle, one of the principles of zero trust. Uh, you need to protect your data. So perhaps it's a no brainer when you read it like that. Um, you know, know your important data, where it is located and whether you have the right kind of defenses implemented for that. So I'd say that those are some fundamentals of cybersecurity hygiene. Uh, you can do a lot more, of course, but high level, these are you know some of the ways to protect against 99% of the attacks according to the data in this report. Um, and you, to protect your data, you can do that in multiple ways. You have, if, you're, if you have data in storage accounts or in resources hosted in Azure, you have encryption, you have bring your own key, you have you know, a dual layer encryption, you have a bunch of different things depending on the service. But also, if you're in 365, you have SharePoint, you have uh, you know a, a vast landscape of data, you have Microsoft Purview, you can classify data. There's a bunch of different solutions to protect your uh, your data, classify it, and and also encrypt it. But those are kind of the high level things. Um, but then we talked about the chapters. You mentioned a bunch of chapters here. Um, so what are those kind of chapters in this report, and what can we uh, know about those? So there's a couple of chapters, all of them interesting. And the, and the first one is the state of cybercrime, sort of positioning ourselves on what is happening today, what's relevant, what's not. Uh, a couple of highlights from the state of cybercrime, one being 80 to 90% of successful ransomware compromises do originate through unmanaged devices. So again, circling back on the managed devices numbers, uh, super crucial now. If if you're listening on this one, you are 
in charge or perhaps part of an IT organization or managing security, and you still have unmanaged devices, go and do something about this. It could be in June, it could be something else. As long as you somehow manage those devices, what access they get, what's happening on those devices. And for example, you can isolate a device if it becomes tainted. Um, I recall just maybe, maybe two days ago talking with somebody and they said one key risk, I don't think it was part of the report, but one key risk that they're seeing now, especially with unmanaged devices is QR codes because you can see QR codes everywhere, but you don't know what the link behind that is before you scan the code. And the exploits through QR codes are, are just going up all the time. So again, you need to circle back to managing your devices. It, 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 it doesn't have to mean that you lock them down fully. And obviously, if you have bring your own device approaches, then you need to sort of design that more carefully and what can we actually manage on those devices? What can we expect our employees to deploy on their on the devices that they themselves own? But that was maybe top of mind for me from the state of cybercrime. How about for you? Yeah, so there's, there's two more takeaways that I have there. Um, one is really surprising, but perhaps not that surprising when you think about it. 70% of organizations encountering human-operated ransomware they had fewer than 500 employees. That's up more than 200%. And that paints the picture again that uh, often when I talk about security posture, cybersecurity tactics and things like that with uh, you know organizations and decision makers and, and cybersecurity professionals, a lot of time you hear, well, we haven't invested that much in it because we're not that big of an organization. And usually ransomware is targeted to the enterprises to lock their entire business down or the industry to, to kind of block their pipelines. But this paints the picture that that's not entirely true. Like 70% of organizations encountering human-operated ransomware having fewer than 500 employees paints the picture that pretty small companies are being impacted um, by ransomware, which is also up by 200% since the last report, which was from last year only. So that is growing a lot. So again, can't overstate this. Security is everyone's responsibility. Everyone needs to chime in at all altitudes in the organization. And it starts obviously with whoever's responsible for your IT and, and security, and then just make sure that everyone is on board on that. Um, another thing that I know, let's see tactics that shifted uh, in the last year. So uh, with threat actors, uh, like exploiting cloud computing resources like VMs to launch DDoS attacks, when like hundreds or millions of requests per second originating from tens of thousands of devices uh, just kind of constitute one attack. The cloud is your kind of best defense due to the scale needed to mitigate the largest attacks as well. So that's interesting to see that in the past, a lot of companies might have said that, well, someone can launch a DDoS attack, but we'll just turn off our firewall or, you know, not turn off the firewall, but turn off the system or incoming requests. But here it shows that your best defense for a DDoS attack is actually to be running your endpoints through the cloud and having the firewalls through the cloud because the cloud scale and the firewalls and the DDoS attacks that the cloud can handle is going to be so much, exponentially much bigger uh, than your local data center can ever handle. Uh, so that's also an interesting kind of thing that you know tactics have shifted. There's a lot of DDoS attacks. There's a lot of attacks through exploited VMs and things like that. Um, 
and due to the scale of the kind of new DDoS attacks, um, the best defense for that is also to have your defense in the cloud uh, because the scale of that cloud will help you. So that's kind of my takeaways from this state of cyber crime, like paint, painting that picture. Um, so what, what's the next chapter from the report? The, the next chapter is nation state threats. And I, I feel it's important to understand the definition of that. So nation state meaning uh, shady organizations that are supported or working for a government with the intention to maybe disrupt or compromise high value target governments. I realize I'm, I'm sounding like a Jason Bourne movie here, but in essence, they are super credible threats. And, and since they are nation state there, they typically have the budget directly from a given nation. And I think they're mentioning maybe a couple of, couple of those nations. For me, this is definitely something that I occasionally think about. And I try to build defense systems for customers with also this in mind. Yet at the same time, perhaps an ideal approach at times, especially for small businesses would be that let's just block all the countries in the world, except the one we are in if you're expecting mostly to work locally. But then again, everything is so distributed, it doesn't really work like that. Any any thoughts on this one? Is this something that keeps you up at night? It's not something that keeps me up at night. Um, in the report, they do highlight a, a couple of different countries um, that are uh, you know, known top threat hackers. Um, but I mean, it doesn't keep me up at night, but I am thinking about it because also where I live in Sweden, we are subject to cyber attacks a lot. There are other state nations attacking Sweden for various reasons. Um, uh, so, so it is on the news. It is something that a lot of folks are thinking about. And a lot of the big companies I've worked with here in Sweden, they had to kind of ramp up their security real quick in the last couple of years because of the kind of increased threat landscape in general online, having resources online or in the cloud, uh, but also being specifically targeted. So not something that keeps me up, um, but it's definitely something to uh, to be aware of. So if, if you do work with defense tactics, it's good to understand who these nations are, uh, what groups exist, and, and you know, kind of what attack patterns they have. But read the full report, and, and you'll be able to dive into a lot of those details. Yeah, good insights. Uh, the next chapter is the cybersecurity challenges. And I feel this is also a bit heavy on the number side, perhaps to paint the big picture in there. There's a lot of interesting statistics in here. So make sure, again, to take a look at the report. But for me, uh, what caught my eye in here is that 78% of IoT devices have known vulnerabilities and they reside on, on customer networks. And 46% of those can't be patched, meaning such legacy systems that you simply, you don't have the source code and you just have to keep running them until you retire those systems. And that's often fairly expensive. Yeah, and, and that's a good reflection because I that stood out to me as well that 78% of all IoT devices having known vulnerabilities in itself is crazy. Like almost all IoT devices has known vulnerabilities and almost half of them 
cannot even be patched. It's ridiculous numbers. Um, so yeah, if you do have a lot of um, uh, IoT devices, um, you know, make sure they get patched if possible. If they cannot be patched, figure out why and if there's a replacement, because there are a lot of known vulnerabilities for a lot of IoT devices running uh, in the wild. Um, something else that stood out is like there's 15 uh, new zero-day vulnerabilities in the CodeSys runtime, which kind of highlights the significant risks associated with not addressing supply chain vulnerabilities. Um, so, I mean, these things, if CodeSys is something you, you can relate to, then then this is an important number to keep track of. Um, but one of the things that really stood out to me is that since 2019, attacks targeting open source software grew on average 742%, right? So OSS or open source systems, um, you know, is being targeted. It has been for some time. And only since 2019, it's growing more than 700% is a proof that whenever you build something, whenever you're using open source, which I know a lot of companies are doing, they're just, hey, let's use this NuGet package. Let's use that thing. Let's uh, take this Python package or NPM package, whatever it may be. Make sure you have vulnerability scanning in place. Make sure you have static code analysis and dynamic code analysis and that you have all these kind of penetration testing of your systems um, to really measure the security that you have. Don't just rely on someone else building open source packages because I've seen this you know, firsthand where open source, popular open source packages uh, has vulnerabilities that has not been known until just now. And when it becomes known, then all of a sudden millions of deployments are at risk because they were just not known before. They were all like the vulnerability was there all the time, but we didn't know about it. Now we know about it, and then we need to figure out how to update and, and mitigate. So again, this is a huge number to me. Um, and just saying that attacks specifically targeting open source software and open source um, kind of packages and, and systems, that's something that you need to think about. Because even if you're building your, your own um, you know, protected IP, whatever system you're building, a SaaS service for some, there's a really good chance you're relying on open source packages. Uh, if you are, you need to make sure that those are healthy, not just by some random third-party code scanner that someone else did. Make sure you, in your security posture, in your secure development lifecycle or SDL, make sure you analyze every one of those packages and all the dependencies you have. I have seen attacks come in uh, through open source packages in the past. I hope you don't get to see that. Um, so take that seriously. If you use open source, this is one of the things I would push and press on the most. Make sure those packages are reliable. This is super solid advice. And I'm thinking now, just last week, I was building building something for a, a prototype for a customer. And, and I was fixing something in Visual Studio with GitHub Copilot chat. And it was suggesting, oh, let's do this and this and this assembly references. And you just do next, next, next and say, oh, this is so awesome with the AI. So I always wonder that what sort of capacity do companies, especially software developers at companies, what sort of capacity and time and resources do they have <clears throat> to, to actually validate these different vulnerabilities in the supply chain. It, it sounds fancy, but it's so easy to just pull an NPM package and say, well, 
let me go with this one. And you don't really maybe validate that library or package that you're getting because it's so handily just there. It doesn't cost you anything. So this is super solid advice, but probably harder to fix in the long term. The next chapter, second to last one, innovating for security and resilience. And perhaps no surprise, AI and LLMs, large language models, are here for rescue as well. I wonder if a year from now in the next report, if we still have AI and LLM, I think we will. Any any thoughts on this one? Uh, yes, uh, I have a lot of thoughts. And actually, we should do an episode only on AI, LLM, LLMs, and cybersecurity in itself. Um, I have seen now up close how organizations are being targeted for uh, AI attacks, where um, the threat actor has started to manipulate the prompts uh, through prompt engineering and also man manipulate the models of the data, uh, which is a little bit scary because all of a sudden, if someone gets in to manipulate your data and manipulate how your prompts behave, can you then trust the AI system that you're relying on? Something to, to ponder about. Um, so I do see um, a need for more security and cybersecurity awareness around AI and LLMs. Uh, I do think LLMs uh, kind of will transform cyber defense for the next generation cybersecurity. Um, modern apps will become more LLM-based in time as well. Uh, so the more apps we build in the future, the more they're going to rely on, on these kind of large language models. Uh, that will obviously increase the attack surface and the threat surface, making them vulnerable. Um, so as LLM-based apps uh, bring new and unique threats, security measures and protocols adopt and adapt to, to address this. Um, I know, for example, Microsoft's focus next year is to bring AI to combat threats. Right, So not just saying that AI can be exposed to threats, but also saying, hey, we have AI on our side as well. So we're going to use and leverage AI to help combat the threats, to, to help kind of increase our defenses. Um, so I think that's really cool, uh, where I think Microsoft also said in this report that they're embracing the uh, uh, three kind of SDL principles of secure by design, secure by default, and secure in deployment. Um, so these things are all you know, something that we can now start leveraging AI to help strengthen. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes. And uh, we can see uh, published on the Microsoft website, there's like the Microsoft Security Copilot, which is like a, bringing new powerful capabilities and, and integrations and kind of industry-leading generative AI um, also for security now. So I, I think we're seeing a, a shift here in how, uh, you know, through the chapter's name, Innovating for Secure and Resilience, I think we're seeing a, a shift in the innovation here, saying not just there are so many threats we need to keep up, but also saying we're now going to have to innovate and be one step ahead of the attacker. Because usually we're always one step behind. You know, the attackers are always making a new attack, and then whoever's doing the defense is like, oh crap, we need to catch up. Now there's an opportunity to get ahead of that. Uh, so I'm really excited to follow this landscape moving ahead in, in the coming year. Agreed fully on that one. And one one funny anecdote here is that traditionally in small language areas like Finland, about 5.5 million, Sweden, I think you're like 9, 10 million people maybe-ish. Uh, it's been said that since we perhaps are a little bit shielded in terms of our culture and the local language, that whenever you get phishing messages, 
you can immediately spot the problem because of the grammatical errors on, on, on even on the first sentence. And with LLMs, I think we don't really have that defense any longer because you can get fluent Finnish or fluent Swedish out with just using a couple of clever prompts. The last chapter is collective defense. So this sort of ties everything back together. So how do we do defense collectively? Partnerships being one, forging partnerships across borders, industries, companies, public-private, and so on. And I think this is interesting, but also I think it's it's quite a bit of a challenge to somehow build this, uh, especially between competing businesses and competing industries. Anything else on the last chapter that, that caught your eye? Yeah, on the collective defense, I, I actually delved into this quite a bit. And one thing that stands out... Um, is the new kind of cybercrime atlas that will maximize kind of global data collection while really ensuring intelligence is thoroughly cleansed. Um, so that's a way to kind of disrupt and defragment the cybersecurity landscape and, uh, well, not disrupt the cybersecurity landscape, uh, disrupt the cybercriminal uh, landscape. So the cybercrime atlas is, is a really good kind of initiative where multiple organizations and state actors, and in this case being governments, uh, like police and law enforcement are joining together to collect signals and kind of build a paint the picture of the threat landscape to uh, help collectively fight cybercrime, which is awesome. So law enforcement can kind of tap into that uh, pool of knowledge and, and experience to uh, to figure things out. So I really like that. Um, and one thing that also stood out that was that fewer than fifteen percent of NGOs which I think is like non-government organizations. So fewer than 15% have cybersecurity experts on their staff, which is a surprising number given the rise of the need for security, cloud security, cybersecurity in the last five years. Even before that, but in the last five years, it's been an exponential growth year over year for the need for, for cybersecurity and security professionals. So it is surprising to me that fewer than 15% of non-government organizations have uh, cybersecurity experts on staff, which is still mind-boggling how security can be such a low priority for many organizations. Um, unless this number means that on staff means being a full-time employee, maybe they're using a, a partner to say, hey, you're going to manage our cloud and you're going to use your cybersecurity professionals to do it for us. Maybe those are not part of the stats. I hope that's the case because uh, that's going to be different numbers coming out then. Uh, but 15% is a pretty low number um, I would expect a lot more companies to embrace cybersecurity uh, roles in their organizations by now. It certainly is a low number, but then again, NGOs, the, the limited exposure I have with working with some NGOs back in the time is, is that the budget are super thin. So perhaps this hasn't been a priority in, a, in, a, in an acceptable way, but in a way that perhaps in the future you need to fix this. Alrighty. So lots to cover in the report. Go and have a look on that one. Uh, the last bit, the unexpected question. Toby, I will be asking you the unexpected question. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's go. What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? That's a great question. So I, I would probably, first of all, say, uh, I think I've had a great life, a great time. 
with many lessons learned and enjoys along the way. So I'm not going to ask for any do-overs. I wouldn't want to change anything about how I've lived my life. But if I did get a chance to go back to myself, uh, I would say, hey, when you get hold of those 40 Bitcoins that you got in 2010, keep them, <laughs> right? Because I, I had 40 Bitcoins and I gave them away for a laptop. Um, I got a brand, um, brand new laptop and I, I gave away my pretty much worthless Bitcoin at the time. Uh, but for those 40 Bitcoins, I could have bought a couple of houses down the street here now. Anyway, um, that's probably one thing. The other, which is probably more realistic, is just educate yourself on the stock market, invest in value and dividend stocks, and generally don't do much different in life than what I've done so far. Just keep doing it. I've lived a really nice life. I, I enjoy everything about my life right now and, and have done always. Uh, I'm in a good place. Um, I'm a happy camper. Uh, but yeah, maybe educate yourself a little bit more on stock market earlier on. Because I remember when I was 18, I turned 18, I had a pair of Titleist uh, 762, really, really uh, good pro golf clubs. But I couldn't afford going to Cyprus to party on Ayanapa. So I sold my pro golf clubs to uh, afford a flight ticket to Ayanapa for a week to get drunk, which I did, and I had a great time, uh, and, and some good photos and good memories. Coming back, I couldn't play golf because obviously I sold my club. So then I had to start working, uh, you know, the budget up again. Um, so that's maybe my advice to myself going back: think twice. Um, you know, still have fun. I don't regret going there, selling my clubs because I had a blast and, and friends for life. But uh, maybe think about long-term investments and, and, you know, boring stuff like, hey, think about your pension, think about investment and, and stuff like that, which generally you don't think about as 18 years old. Um, long answer to a short question, but some reflections on life. Solid, solid advice. So 40 Bitcoins, I think it just hit $33,000. So that's about 3.2. One one point three million dollars, maybe if you sold them today. But I think Bitcoin was way higher, maybe three years ago. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty high. I think sixty five thousand at some point uh, dollars per coin. So yeah, lost opportunity there. But again, no regrets, no do overs, because I did get a really good laptop, and I used that laptop uh, to develop one of my companies when I built products for the SharePoint space. So without that laptop. I may or may not have been as successful in this industry as I have been. So thank you for the Bitcoins for not staying with me. <laughs> Excellent. Alrighty. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. All right. See you then.